Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. In this podcast, you'll hear detailed and relatively unbiased information about Israeli politics and current events. It's been an exciting week in the news, starting from the top. French President Emmanuel Macron says that he rejects negotiations with Iran over their nuclear deal. He says they are very close to developing a nuclear weapon. This is going to escalate the possibility of military intervention by those allies in the Abrahamic alliance who are against Iran developing a nuclear weapon, and it will certainly throw a monkey wrench into Biden administration plans to try to negotiate a return to the Obama-era peace deal, which uh, was abandoned by the Trump administration. There was also a blast recently at the Israeli embassy in New Delhi, India, where a letter citing, among other things, the Soleimani death as a cause for the blast, suggests that Iran may be stepping up international violence against Israel in an escalation of the uh, pressure from their end. So Iran is attacking Israel with a little bit more gusto at a time when uh, negotiations over Iran's nuclear deal are being attempted. So we'll see how that plays out. There's been talk of extending Israel's virus lockdown for another week and increasing the fines. Uh, Benny Gantz is threatening, quote-unquote, to uh, talk about a, uh, to expose, that is, a fake lockdown or how lax the lockdown is if they don't double the fines and increase enforcement. And this is probably going to mean an attempt to lock down the Haredi communities, the ultra-Orthodox communities as well, and I'll be talking about them a little bit later in the program. On to the political news. Gidon Sa'ar, the main competitor in the elections against Bibi Netanyahu for prime minister, has said Bibi is playing dirty games as usual, accusing him of smearing Sa'ar like he smeared so many of his opponents in the past, trying to uh, dismiss him, uh, attacking his credibility and his competence. And, uh, of course, there are some personal attacks on he and his family. This is nothing new in Israeli politics, and, uh, as he notes, this has happened before to a lot of Israeli politicians who have run against Bibi Netanyahu. But Gidon Sa'ar says he is unfazed. He is not afraid, and he will continue to stand against Bibi Netanyahu in the elections. Sa'ar has also expanded his platform a little bit. Uh, He's said he is against Palestinian statehood, that is uh, consistent with his past policies, but he does support autonomy for the Palestinians, also consistent with his past policies. But that clarifies his stance there. Uh, He's also supporting law enforcement reform, and as I discussed in the last episode, there's been a, a number of different proposals to reform the relationship between the Knesset parliament and the judiciary, and Sa'ar is proposing that. I would also note he's spoken of decentralizing power to local councils and city governments as well. So we're starting to get a better picture of what Gidon Sa'ar's policies are looking like. He continues to poll in the 12 to 15 seat range, so that shows that his popularity remains. However, Likud, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's party, is still polling in the 29 to 32 range. So Bibi is still quite a bit more popular. And in other political news, 
The leader of Yamina, Naftali Bennett, uh, the party I described in the last episode, has been walking back some of his statements about not working with Bibi after the election. Uh, he's left open the possibility of joining a coalition with Netanyahu. And as I mentioned in the last program, it would be very difficult for Bibi to form a government without the help of Yamina. They probably won't make up the difference between Likud and the ultra-Orthodox parties and a majority, but they will certainly make a significant distance uh, and a huge dent. As I mentioned last time, uh, there's beginning to be a feeling, uh, the way the, the vaccines were distributed in Israel, that Netanyahu is likely to win re-election. And Bennett is probably feeling that heat a little bit, which is why he's walking back some of his statements and keeping the door open to working with Bibi after the election. He doesn't want to be uh, caught in that uh, political backlash if there is a popular upsurge in support for Netanyahu. In a recent interview with Times of Israel, Gidon Sa'ar reiterated his point that he believes Bibi is putting his own personal interests ahead of the political interests of Israel as a whole, because he does not want to be charged and tried for the corruption charges that are pending against him, but would rather continue to serve as prime minister and thus avoid having to face those charges. Uh, he continues with that talking point that this is Bibi putting himself first instead of putting Israel's needs first. And he accused the media of being 100% in Netanyahu's court of supporting Bibi and being biased against Bibi's opponents. Now, there are some... You know, there's some purpose to that, obviously, in the in the political brinkmanship in Israeli politics. But there have been allegations that in those uh, corruption charges that Bibi has been working with uh, the head of major media companies to bias news in his favor. So uh, there may be something to Gidon Saar's allegations. On the other hand, uh, as I've noted before, Bibi Netanyahu is a very popular figure, and uh, there are a number of negative media reports about him as well. So there's, there's plenty of allegations that can be cast on both sides of that particular, uh, on that particular issue. Now, as February arrives, a deadline will be reached where political parties need to have uh, statements ready with their platforms and need to know who is running and need to have applied to be on the ballot. So we will know which political parties precisely are contesting the election and what their platforms are very soon. Uh, we're already starting to see those platforms develop, as I described about Gidon Sa'ar's platform, but we'll have more information on the, the, the particulars, the details, I'll say, in about a week. So hopefully next episode we'll have a little bit more on which political parties uh, in particular, are embracing which positions as they go forward into the election. Again, we'll also know which parties are actually contesting the elections, which parties will be on the ballot. As I mentioned before, there is a three and a quarter percent threshold that parties must reach in order to win seats in the Knesset. So if uh, there may be 50 political parties contesting the election, it's very possible that fewer than 12 will win seats. But uh, we'll we'll have all that information in about a week, and I'll be able to talk a little bit more about who in particular is actually running. Usually, I don't I don't waste much time on the the little political parties that never get many seats. For example, Israel has a Green Party, but they they never earn seats in Parliament, and they haven't even when the threshold was much lower than it is now. So we're not likely to see them, but we'll know that they're running for sure. Uh, in any case, the uh, political uh, maneuvering and some of the moving around from different political parties should be over by then. 
Speaking of moving around, Avi Nisenkorn has moved again. He has flown uh, from the Israelis' party over to Labor and uh, wants to work with them. So this is uh, the the former justice minister who is uh, who has been a member of Blue and White with uh, Benny Gantz, whose loss of popularity means his party is barely uh, coaxing above the, the threshold there. And Avinisa Korn has moved from that party over to the Israelis' party, uh, Mayor Ron Huldai's party, uh, Tel Aviv Mayor Ron Huldai, uh, which is intended to focus on the uh, the Israelis who feel left behind by the more right-leaning nature of Israeli politics at present. And uh, now he's moved on to labor, so he's he's flying around from one party to the next. If he's not careful, he's going to tie Sipi Livni for most political parties uh, to his name as he is involved in Israeli politics. That's a, a story for another time. In any case, the parties should be finalized here very soon, and people will not move around anymore, and platforms will be more certain, and we'll finally move into the final stretch of political campaigning as uh, the parties begin competing with one another. In last week's episode, I discussed the secular right political parties that exist in Israel. Well, this week we are going to discuss the religious right political parties and round out the right block so we will have the right block kind of covered. I've talked a lot about Gidon Sa'ar and his party, uh, as well as uh, his platform, so I'm not going to go ahead and go into that too much in depth. We're going to hear a lot about that as we go forward in the election. And then next week, I should be able to talk about the center-left parties, which should be exciting. The two Haredi ultra-Orthodox political parties in Israel are United Torah Judaism, UTJ, and SHAS. SHAS is an acronym that stands for Torah Talmud. I've spoken before of some of the hair-splitting reasons that lead to political parties being separate parties, even though they share a lot of interests in common or have very similar platforms, but in this case, they make a big difference. United Torah Judaism represents the Ashkenazic or European Jewish tradition, and Shas represents the Sephardic or Middle Eastern tradition, and that makes a big difference. The Ashkenazim are seen as scholarly and intellectual, coming from Europe. Uh, they are more stringent, at least in their view, about how the religious laws should be observed. Whereas Sephardic Jews come from the Middle East, they tend to be a little bit more relaxed about a lot of things, but they would say that they are still very stringent. Uh, but they, for example, in their religious schools, don't separate boys and girls like the Ashkenazim do. And they are more in keeping, I want to say, with Israeli culture. For example, they, they watch TV and they are uh, a little bit better acculturated with Israelis. The Ashkenazim, uh, the Ashkenazic Orthodox will tend to pride themselves on how they don't watch TV and they aren't involved in the culture and they uh, they keep separate from it. So there are, there are intense differences between the two, but they both share the vision of being Israel's religious parties pushing religious laws and religious views. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes about who the Haredi are, <laughs> who the ultra-Orthodox community are, and why that makes a difference. So you've got a, a group of people who are between 10 and 12% of Israel's population, but they didn't start out that way. Early on in Israeli history, there were a small number of Jews who wanted to study religion, and they went to Ben-Gurion, 
and tried to negotiate a, a way for them to study Judaism full-time to keep Jewish tradition alive. And so Ben-Gurion allowed them, uh, it, sort of out of compromise, to uh, study full-time so that they could be the rabbis and the religious scholars, the sages, for uh, people to learn from. And at the time, there were a hundred maybe a few hundred of these uh, religious students. And they were exempted from conscription uh, in the army, although everyone else is required to serve in the military who is Jewish. Uh, the Arab population is exempted, as are the Druze and, and a few others, but uh, the Jewish population is required to go into the military and serve their, their two-year conscription. Well, the Haredi were exempted from that so that they could continue their religious studies originally. But this group of 100, 200 people grew and expanded now to 10 to 12 percent of Israel's population. And that creates some challenges. When you have a large group of people where the men do not work, they spend all day studying in religious schools. And when I say all day, I mean all day. <laughs> Early in their religious studies, they go to a school called the, the Kolel or Koilel, depending on uh, which religious tradition you are adhering to. And in this, they study literally from dawn to, to dusk in these religious schools, and they maybe get about an hour of time with their new wife. Uh, this goes on for several years, so uh, they're, they don't have much family time. Uh, they're focused on studying all the time. So when I, when I say there's intense study, there is intense study. Now, this would be just fine if it were a group of private citizens who paid their own keep and, and took care of their own uh, financial needs. But the fact is, they're a drain on the state of Israel. Their schools are financed by public money, even though they don't teach math and science like the rest of Israeli schools do, thus sabotaging those in the Haredi community who might want to work in the uh, secular world, where if you don't know much about math and science, you aren't going to be very successful. They also leave their wives to work multiple jobs, and oftentimes they, they're having multiple children, uh, up to eight, nine, ten children. And uh, this leads to early onset of osteoporosis and other problems and health problems for these women who are working constantly to support their husbands. And of course, they take a lot of welfare money. Now, I mentioned these religious parties have been kingmakers in the government many times. And as kingmakers, they've been able to win for themselves a lot of special privileges. So, for example, no one can do anything about the fact that their schools don't teach math and silence because they keep having this incredibly undue influence on the government. Not only that, they skew the welfare benefits to their own benefit. As an example, uh, the welfare benefits for poor families, when they have, say, one or two children, are set at a certain amount. But as the number of children increases to three, four, five, six, the number, uh, the amount of money that is paid increases much more rapidly so that big families receive a lot more money for those uh, later children. Well, since secular families have a tendency to have one, two, three children, they don't get those welfare benefits that families with six, seven, eight, or nine children have. And that creates some imbalance uh, in the welfare payments. There's also uh, money that has been paid by the government to those early uh, Koilel uh, students, uh, a special fund for them so that they don't have to work. And again, there's the exemption from conscription. 
so they don't have to serve in the military. So this creates a lot of unique challenges for Israeli society. Uh, overburdened secular taxpayers are paying for a group of people who do not want to work, do not want to serve in the military, refuse to teach modern mathematics and science to their children, and refuse to cooperate with any effort to reform their communities. Not only that, their political parties, again, as kingmakers, are constantly trying to push religious laws on the common people. So as an example, they want to have men and women separated on buses. And the bus lines that they themselves run, and bus lines run by private companies within ultra-Orthodox communities, separate the men and the women. But uh, Israel is an egalitarian society, and the idea of separating women on buses is horrific and horrendous to most Israelis. So uh, the effort to push that is problematic. They also have a very stringent view of Shabbat observance. Uh, Jewish Shabbat is observed from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset and requires that people do no work. And so the, the ultra-Orthodox interpret that very broadly, including a large number of things that you're not allowed to do on that day, and they want laws implemented to make sure that people don't do them. So they don't want people driving on Shabbat, and they don't want people uh, working at conven convenience stores and that kind of thing. Well, as a religious Jew, while I, I understand that, and I certainly don't want to work on Shabbat, the fact is Israel is a modern democratic country, and there are a lot of people there who, although they may be Jewish, don't want to observe those rules. They want to work on Shabbat or drive on Shabbat. It's their only weekend day. It's their only day off from work. So some people want to go and enjoy themselves. So this creates uh, some friction within the society. Of course, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that there are one in five Israelis who are Arab, Christian, or Muslim, or uh, members of various religious minorities who don't observe Shabbat and thus would not uh, be keen to observe Jewish law that way. So they're kind of put upon. At the same time, for example, in Muslim communities and, and Muslim neighborhoods in Israel, they don't have to observe Shabbat because they're in their own neighborhoods. So People continue to drive, and they continue to do uh, what they normally do. So there are different rules, I want to say, that apply there culturally, uh, even though the ultra-Orthodox attempt to impose their rules on Israeli society. So perhaps it's time to admit that I have a little bit of a bias against the Haredi in that they take this public money and that they don't serve in the military. These are, are two issues that bother me quite a bit. And uh, you've probably heard that in my voice and, and a little bit up to this point. Now we're going to flip the coin over. What are some of the problems that the Haredi face in Israeli society? There are significant problems with discrimination in the workforce against the ultra-Orthodox, even those who have studied math and science. Uh, these are people who dress in a certain way. Black hats, black coats, they, they have uh, a very distinctive appearance. And there is an association in Israeli society of incompetence and ignorance with that manner of dress and, and with that particular community. So Im Israeli employers are somewhat reluctant to hire uh, Haredi individuals, even when they do serve in the military and want to work in the workforce. The Israeli government, in an effort to encourage the Haredi to join the military and do their conscription, has also made it illegal for those who uh, did not serve their conscription to work. 
And so this creates some problems there. And this means that a lot of ultra-Orthodox people will work under the table uh, illegally and in some pretty horrendous working conditions in an effort to try to make money for their families. Some of the men do actually work. So it's a difficult situation for them as well. The question of conscription is also a challenge because the ultra-Orthodox will note that the military does not serve kosher food up to the standard that the ultra-Orthodox hold, which in the case of the Ashkenazim in particular ever is ever-rising. They're always creating more uh, tightly knit, tightly controlled uh, forms of, of kashrut and kosher food for themselves. So everything had to be uh, up to a certain standard of kashrut, and then it was glot kosher. Now it's mahadran. Everything has to be up to this new higher standard, and that creates problems when you're trying to keep up because now it's, uh, it's difficult to make sure you have all of the appropriate food. And the purpose of joining the military, of course, is to be the same to wear a uniform, for everyone to look the same and behave the same in, uh, as part of a, a combat unit that is intended to defend the country. Uh, so this is a problem for everyone there where you have a group of people who want to be separated from that, uh, who do not want to be part of the whole, who want to be distinct. And this, this is part of the cultural challenge between the two. So again, uh, back to my bias, I have no problem with the Haredi living whatever lifestyle they want to live and doing whatever they want to do. My, my personal bias against them is, again, that the welfare funding is skewed, that public funding goes to schools that don't teach properly, and that they are pushing religious laws on the secular population who do not want them. This is the, the same secular population that, by paying their taxes, are financing uh, this particular lifestyle. There are a number of other problems in the Haredi community. Uh, they'll have a tendency to hide children from social services and move them around from family to family so that uh, child welfare cannot find them when uh, parents are deemed to be unsafe so that the kids keep moving around so that they don't end up in the foster child system. I can certainly understand their concerns that if they go into a secular foster care system, they're not going to be with religious parents. But at the same time, you have to admit that uh, resisting the authorities that way is, is rather uh, difficult for Israeli society to handle, that, that that somewhat looks bad. And it makes it very difficult to prosecute abuse. There have been a number of teachers and rabbis who have been caught uh, committing sexual abuse or otherwise abusing children, and it's been very difficult to uh, root that out, to find people willing to come forward and testify against these people with great reputations in the community and say that they were injured and harmed, and that leads to some uh, significant challenges. When it comes to the virus, this has also been a major issue because the ultra-Orthodox don't really believe in germs. They don't wash their hands with soap, and they don't believe that illness comes from microscopic organisms. They have a tendency to believe that it comes from uh, more superstitious places, that if you fall ill, it's a matter of not being faithful enough or, or you didn't do enough study, things of that nature. So uh, when the government tries to implement this lockdown, the Haredi are going about their regular lives. They don't see a problem. They don't really care. Uh, they did attend a, a massive funeral recently for a rabbi who died uh, while infected with the coronavirus. And uh, that indicates, again, that they really don't care. And so it's very difficult to get this community to conform, even when some would argue that it's for their own good.
So this is the conundrum that Israel faces when it comes to the ultra-Orthodox. Chronically unemployed, uh, very poor, suffering uh, from the poverty and taking up a large amount of social welfare in Israel and not contributing to the economy at the same time. Again, they face some discrimination in the workforce, and they're not allowed to work if they don't serve their time in the military. Now, one could argue that there are some compromises that could be made there, for example, in a means to, uh, in an effort to contribute, get the Haredi to contribute to the economy, you could argue that perhaps they be exempted from conscription and allowed to work as a way to encourage them into the workforce. Uh, and maybe there's a compromise there if they'll teach math and science in the schools and if the leaders of the community will cooperate with the government in enforcing the authority of the government, then perhaps the conscription laws can be exempted and they can be allowed to work even if they don't serve in the military. Uh, many Israelis would like to go to an all-volunteer military, which is another option there. Uh, unfortunately, Israel is simply not in the kind of security situation where that is a safe policy. They need to have a large number of people in the reserves who are trained in, in military uh, duty and can quickly answer the call to come to arms and defend the country against severe threats. So this is this is an interesting challenge. How does Israel address this? There's some, uh, some discrimination on, on the part of secular Israelis against the Haredi. The Haredi don't want to work. There's been some violence. There's uh, police officers trying to arrest the Haredi for violating the virus lockdown and so forth. So this is a, a point of constant contention. But these two political parties tend to poll between five and eight seats they tend to serve in the government, and they are close allies of Bibi Netanyahu. So they are eager to work with the prime minister, and he needs all of the partners and allies he can get right now if he wants to win re-election. So this is, this is it, and it, it creates a, a major problem in Israeli society. Most Israelis that I've talked to personally, secular Israelis, do not want to see any harm come to the ultra-Orthodox population, but they also don't like that they have these special privileges and, and exemption from military service and, of course, the, the welfare benefits. And they do admit when you talk to them that, yeah, you know, people tend to look down on the Haredi culturally. And when you talk to the ultra-Orthodox, they are very adamant about their beliefs, about how they live, and they are not really open to changing their lifestyle. I uh, had uh, uh, many a good Shabbat dinner with several different Haredi families and, and some lively discussions, but they are very eager to defend their lifestyle. And it's a lot like lifestyle in the shtetl back in Europe, and uh, one could argue that maybe bringing that to Israel wasn't a good idea. Maybe they should have adapted or, or changed their conduct or behavior but they have a right to live how they want to live. Uh, the problem is the burden that creates for secular Israelis. So look for these political parties to be part of any coalition that Bibi Netanyahu is in. But uh, again, as I've mentioned, it's entirely possible if, if uh, Gidon Sa'ar is very close to forming a government that these uh, ultra-Orthodox parties might ditch Bibi and go join him in an effort to preserve their own power because if some of the anti-Orthodox parties 
uh, like the center-left Yeshatid party led by Yair Lapid, were to join the government without the ultra-Orthodox to balance out his power, that would be a, a great threat to their interests, and they might, at the last minute, ditch Bibi and join Gidon Saar. How will this all play out? We'll find out when the election's over and the coalition building process begins. It's going to be exciting. Well, that's another exciting installment of Inside Israel News. Uh, look us up on Facebook, see what you can find there, and uh, offer some feedback. Tell me what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. Also, InsideIsrael.News. Lehitrot, goodbye. <laughs> Kol se yamam makhar im lo